When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You know, just a reminder, we have a brand new pale blue women's tee. I am wearing mine right now. And it's in the hashtag. And it looks great. Thank you very much. I love it. It's super comfy. And it's in the hashtag sistersinlaw merch store. So you can go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now. But hurry up because they're really going fast because they're fabulous. Today, y'all, we are doing a deep dive into the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson. And as always, we'll be looking forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But I just wanted to start off in the chit chat um, by allowing us time to acknowledge the passing of former Secretary of State and Ambassador Madeleine Albright. You know, I had one, uh, I had the pleasure to meet her briefly, just one time. And so for all of us, we're all MSNBC contributors. And one thing that, especially for me as a reporter, that can be beneficial to that is that when you're in the green room, a lot of times you're in the green room with, you know, heads of state, elected officials, really important people. I once met Jane Fonda. Um, but particularly for the elected officials and particularly here in Washington, it's an opportunity to talk to them, to get an interview in sometimes that you wouldn't have otherwise known you could get. I've talked to, you know, members of Congress. But what often happens for the women <laughs> is while you see the men having these conversations with them for long periods of time while they're waiting for their hits, women are brought into a makeup room that is adjacent to the green room. And you're sitting in this chair for, you know, sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes getting false eyelashes glued on you and whatnot. And you hear the conversations that the other male journalists are having with these important people. And it just felt to me like just one of those little indignities that sexism puts on you. The fact that I need false eyelashes to give my views on television uh, and I'm missing out on those opportunities. So one day that was happening. I was literally having a conversation with someone uh, and I got called into the makeup room and I knew that the men in that room would continue that conversation and I would miss out. And I was feeling some type of way about it. So I go into the makeup room, I sit in the chair and I look to my left and sitting there getting her makeup done was Madeline Albright. And I just thought, oh my goodness. And I said to her, it's like, you know what, uh, Madam Secretary, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I was just thinking to myself, it's such a shame that I couldn't continue my other conversation outside because I'm a woman and I need to get, you know, foundation and all this stuff done to my face. Uh, and I wish I remembered exactly what she said, but it was essentially like, yeah, you know, we women have to endure all kinds of things. I've known that throughout my whole career. She was wonderful. She was warm. Um, and we had a nice little chat while we were getting powdered and, and uh, having lipstick applied. But I, I definitely want to hear from Jill. I know how important she was to you. Uh, and just give me your thoughts about Madeline Albright. 
Well, I first met her uh, during the Hillary Clinton campaign um, in Iowa. And as you described her, she is warm and gracious and kind and obviously brilliant. And we had some very good discussions then. But when I started the other podcast that I do, iGen Politics, she was one of the people that I really wanted to have on, both because she had just written a book about fascism, and it's really sad that we are denied her voice on a topic she knew so well at a time when we certainly need it. But before I had the courage to call her to be a guest on iGen Politics, I was picking up at my post office box, which is where I get pins from fans and things. I had a key in my box, which means that there was a box that was sent to me that was too big for my little post office box. And I opened it up, and I took it out, and I said, oh, someone who spells their name exactly like Secretary (laughs) Albright has sent me something really large. And then I opened it up, and it was from Secretary Albright. It was her book, which, of course, I already owned a copy of. This is her book about pins called Read My Pins. Because, like me, she has used pins as a means of communication. And this was how she used them as Secretary of State to send a message to various dignitaries and heads of state that she was meeting with. And the book is inscribed to me saying... Thank you for your service to our country, and I love, underlined, your pins. I could not have been, I mean, I almost broke down in tears reading that. And it has meant so much to me to have that inscribed copy, and that gave me the courage to invite her as a guest on iGen Politics. And she was, of course, brilliant and wonderful talking about fascism and pins. So she's, she's the real deal, and I... I think about her thoughts about her family escaping Nazis and her book on fascism and what she as Secretary of State would be doing right now as Russia invades Ukraine. How about you, Joyce? So, you know, I had always admired her from afar. I was an international relations major in college. I was just this close um, to wanting to go into the Foreign Service, wanting to go to Johns Hopkins for graduate work instead of law school. But my granddad had gently nudged me um, to continue on on a path towards law school. So I, I didn't do that. But I found myself several years ago at the White House Correspondents' Dinner being introduced to her by a mutual friend. And, you know, it's the big correspondence dinner with tons of really fascinating people there. And I'm just mostly sitting on the outskirts sort of with my eyes wide open, seeing a lot of really interesting people. And what struck me, and Kim, it's very much like what you said about her and what Jill has said, was she was really interested. She wasn't looking past me for the next conversation. She looked right at me. We had an absolutely wonderful conversation that just confirmed everything that I had always thought about her from a distance. Um, And it is such a terrible loss for us, but by the same token, we're so lucky to have had her guidance at an important point in time. And I loved President Clinton's remarks this morning when he talked not just about their friendship, but about how profoundly mentored and guided he had been by her. I thought it was sort of refreshing to hear a very powerful man acknowledging that women needed to have a seat at the table, too. Um, What about you, Barb? Yeah, I had a chance to meet her one time. 
um, I was at the Aspen Security Forum. Uh, you know, I, I teach national security law, and when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I focused on national security law. So there's this forum of your, it's in Aspen, which is not a, a bad place to go for a conference in the summer. And she is uh, part of that group, and she gave a talk that summer um, at, at the event and, you know, talked about her experience as a refugee, which I also think is a really important perspective for somebody who is serving as yeah. Secretary of State. Um, but uh, I made it a point to go stalk her. I said, I will meet her. Um, and the conference is, you know, it's a big conference, but it's small enough that people do kind of hang around and mingle a little bit. So I, uh, you know, I scouted her out from the end of her talk and I, I followed her and I had a chance to meet her and she was lovely and she was uh, very gracious to pose for a selfie with me, which I posted on Twitter this week. And um, I went I went back and dug it out from on my phone and found it. And, you know, at the time, I don't remember noting it, but I did look to see what her pin was, Jill, and it was two owls, um, yeah. which uh, I thought was very interesting. I'm sure there was a reason she wore the two owls that day. Um, maybe it was something that she talked about, but uh, uh, I, I enjoyed seeing that on her um, on her lapel. So uh, we lost a giant. She was a significant uh, contributor to American history and world history. And boy, um, is her work to promote and expand NATO. Uh, does that feel uh, all the more relevant today? Yeah. Well, sisters, I've been dying to talk with you at the end of this week when we saw the confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was quite a week. The hearings had a little Ooh. bit of everything, and I'm dying to hear um, what, what you thought. So I've got a few questions for you, but let me just start by asking you, you know, big picture. Was there something that struck you or a moment that you'll remember most, something that you thought about the historic significance of this moment? Like what's maybe one thing that really stood out for you? Joyce, I'll start with you. You know, I'm going to say that my favorite thing about these hearings, um, and I'm, I wish I could be nice and tactful, but it's been a long week, and I thought it was an emotional week. And I loved watching a brilliant black woman, a brilliant appellate lawyer, a brilliant former defender, smack people who asked her stupid questions like they deserve to be smacked in this brilliant but very polite way answering their questions, displaying the fact that they did not understand the sentencing guidelines nearly as, as well as she did, but always showing sort of that um, that demeanor that you really want to see from a judge, you know, somebody who behaves in a responsible, respectful way, even when the questions that they're being asked don't deserve that sort of respect. And, and so my overall takeaway, the thing that made me feel pretty happy this week, was seeing that, that a black woman nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States is sent straight from central casting for what you want a Supreme Court justice to look like and behave like. Yeah, can I jump off of that? Because I wanted to, one thing that I noticed this week, um, and, and I think you're right, Joyce, she did do that, particularly on uh, Wednesday, um, but on Tuesday, <laughs> I felt like there was this um, uh, 
for her, she had to really swallow down everything that you know that she was really thinking in the face of this these questions. And it was infuriating to me for a lot of reasons, the, the most of which is there is... Yeah, there is an, a general expectation partic- of all women, of all women, particularly of Black women, um, that we are supposed to face the indignities uh, that we encounter with a smile, without saying anything, without talking back. Um, and I get in this hearing, it was important for her to show that judicial temperament, that that was part of what she was being judged upon. But the fact that that was required and that I was screaming at the screen on her behalf, and I know a lot of other anger translator were. Yes, exactly. I was, oh, I would have totally yes. been an anger translator. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about how another nominee in 2018 yelled and screamed and threatened members of that committee in a way that was celebrated by the people in the party that nominated him and that she did not have anywhere near the privilege to do anything like that. And I will listen, listen, I'll be honest. I don't think that Amy Coney Barrett had that full privilege either. Although I think she had more than Katanji Brown Jackson has, but the fact that you, that was on display really, yes, it showed how much poise and grace and how often she's faced this and how good she is at it. Um, go look at the Trevor Noah tweet uh, at her facial expressions and, you know, you'll you'll see that. But it angered me that she had to have that. And I was happy that on Wednesday she pushed back a little more. And I was also happy that on Wednesday that uh, Chairman Dick Durbin pushed back on her behalf a little more against some of the more ridiculous things that she was facing. You tweeted about that, Kim, and it really caught my attention. At one point you had said you were happy that she was letting a little bit of her impatience or her emotional response show. And I agreed with that. I thought that that was an important moment for her to be her reserved, dignified self and still convey a little bit of, okay, you guys are out of line here. I like that. Yep. It's a very fine line for women to be able to do that. And as Kim said, especially for a black woman who will be uh, labeled angry black woman. But, but it's true for all women, and I think you're right that even Amy Coney Barrett could not fully let loose the way Kavanaugh did, because it would have been exactly what they were looking for to say, ah, a woman is not qualified. This woman is not qualified. And that's, that is horrifying. I'm sorry we're there. And if I could add, I, in terms of what was, you know, let's take a happier moment, and I would say it was Cory Booker who really changed the dynamics. He did bring a tear to Katanji Brown's, uh, uh, Jackson's eye, as anybody would have, because it was quite emotional, his praise of her saying, you are worthy and you are here. Uh, it, it also inspired my choice of pins for today's show, which is dancing backwards oh, in high heels, it. because he said... <laughs> You deserve to be here because, like Ginger Rogers, you did everything Fred Astaire did, only backwards and in high heels. And so I thought his remarks were really just right and that you can't take the joy out of this event by your stupid questions from the other side. And they were really stupid. <laughs> so many of them. But I know we'll get to talking about who our favorite bad person was during <laughs> Kim, the Kim, what struck you most? What, what's memorable for you? What will you take away from these? Yeah, I 
was glad that um, for Americans who watched that hearing, despite all the shenanigans, they were able to see uh, a woman who really is a shining star in our industry, in the legal industry, someone who has worked uh, in places that other attorneys really don't want to. They, you know, it's hard to get an attorney to be a public defender uh, in any sense. I knew in law school, y'all, I knew in law school, I did not have the, 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 the stomach to be a criminal attorney at all. So hats off to all of you and certainly not a defense attorney. I wanted to be that person because I knew um, exactly the importance that Judge Jackson talked about was the need for criminals. Every, every, it, for defendants, let me say that again. I knew the importance of having criminal defendants have strong and zealous representation, regardless of what they are charged with doing. It's super important for our judicial system, uh, for fairness, and for our our system of government to ensure that they are represented fully. And I wanted to be the person who could do that, but I knew I wasn't. Like, I know my limitations, y'all. That would be hard. I would cry a lot. The kinds of, uh, the fact situations uh, in these cases would be too much for me. So I knew I was headed to the civil arena from jump. So I give her and all of y'all that. Um, but to have that uh, on the court and for her to talk about and explain why it's so important and meticulously go through how she handled each of those cases was really important. I think that it is fair to ask her about her record. Again, we'll talk about how it's unfair to approach that. But she handled that so well. It was wonderful to see her family. It was wonderful to see her parents. The point in this that felt the most personal to me was seeing her mom and dad sitting there. And I think about my mom and dad and the sacrifices that they made for uh, their six children, including me. And I see um, her husband sitting there and I you know, think about my husband. And, and just seeing that she comes from this family who clearly loves and appreciates her, that she has worked all her life, that she's had these experiences where she did and always feel like she felt in, but she persevered. And I'm so glad America got to see that. Yeah, I too was struck by um, her family. I was going to say her parents. The, there was, you know, somebody captured a, a, a photo of them just, you know, gazing on with such pride. And she talked about how they went to segregated schools as children. And so, you know, in, in one generation, they've seen, you know, from segregated schools to the Supreme Court is, uh, is pretty yeah. remarkable. And uh, I think not only does it show, you know, her incredible achievement, but I think it should reflect well on all of us in America. I mean, shame on us that it's taken 246 years or whatever it's been to get here, but we got here, which I think is part of the point Cory Booker was making. We should all be celebrating this. Uh, anytime one of these barriers is broken by anybody, it's broken for everybody. Uh, you know, you, you got to knock these these barriers down so that everybody has an opportunity to serve and that our, so our institutions can get better by having all of that talent and the benefit of everybody's talent in the court. So I thought that was a wonderful moment of celebration. I also thought that the lower some of these senators got, and they got so low, some of them, um, the better she looked. Mm. I think if you're a casual observer of these hearings and you don't tune in often, it's pretty shocking to see what some of these senators are willing to do and the misleading and argumentative nature of their questioning. And so I think by maintaining her strength and her grace and showing her wisdom, 
wisdom and her patience. I think the, the contrast was so stark and just made her look all the better uh, for the, the lower they got. Um, but speaking of low, I want to hear your nominations for the Most Outrageous Moment Award. What, or what was, you know, what, what did you think was the, the oh, come on, the over the top? Anybody have any nominees? I'm nominating Senator Cruz. <laughs> He's my favorite bad guy in this one. His reading a book about racist babies and holding up a child's book with complete with pictures. His, I could see him writing the ad that he's going to use. Well, you're not answering my questions. Well, sir, that's because you're not letting me. You're cutting me off. And that's an issue, by the way, that the Supreme Court has addressed. Women get cut off more than men. The women justices get cut off more than their male colleagues yeah. by both the their colleagues and by advocates, which is just incredibly impossible for me to believe. I, I, I argued in the Supreme Court. I would never, ever Wait, I'm sorry. have interrupted Jill, Jill, you've argued in the Supreme speaking. Court? Oh my gosh! Every, every, I swear, in the many every careers week, of Jill Weinberg. Every week we learn about some. New, that's a big deal. I'm, and I won. What? I won. Yeah. No. It. It was when I was the uh, Solicitor General of Illinois, and it was a criminal wow. case. Um, no, no major significant legal issue, but it was important in the context of Illinois, and and it was it was a big deal. I still have my quill pen that I got from that occasion, and. Um, it's it's quite terrifying, and the bench is a lot higher than you think it is. And, and really I mean, close, I hear. Right? It's and super up close up. to you. Yeah, it's, well, not, it's closer than you would be in a normal federal court, but it's, it's mostly its height is just, mm. I mean, you're really like, and I'm not that short, but I really literally had to tilt my head backwards to look up at the judges, justices, and to appropriately address them. I mean, it was, it was quite terrifying, actually. But um, anyway, that, and I've lost my thread on what <laughs> I was right. saying you were talking about, about. You were talking about Ted Cruz. I was going to agree with you. Um, yeah. I particularly thought that the, could I be an Asian man, was um, probably a low point in the proceedings, given that we've spoken about, um, and he was certainly getting at uh, laws meant to protect transgender folks, particularly transgender kids, uh, and, and that just was a particularly low blow um, with the respect to the uh, anti-racist baby book that he was holding up. Um, you know, Ibram Kendi, who is the author of that book, who has won uh, numerous awards um, for his uh, for his work. It just made me that more uh, that much pr uh, prouder that my uh, project, The Emancipator, the joint project with BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research and the Boston Globe. Uh, he's a co-founder of that. And, and I'm a part of that. I just felt proud. I was like, yes, mm -hmm. Ibram. A and it demonstrates uh, why you need it, it right? The yes. And <laughs> book sales have soared. Yes. So thank you, Ted Cruz. <laughs> I saw that. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> So is that your entry too, Kim? Most outrageous moment was the yes. anti-racist baby? I would give the am I an Asian man? No, Especially since, Asian. listen, they went to school together. He has known her for 20 plus years. It, yeah. it just demonstrates how disingenuous all that was. Mm -hmm. How about you, Joyce? They were on Law Review together. It was inexcusable. Yep. What's your uh, nominee uh, for the Most Outrageous Moment Award? 
I think Jill's comment, it was inexcusable, is so evergreen when it comes to this hearing. But for me, (laughs) you know, the point at which I really just couldn't take it anymore and was so impressed by the fact that her demeanor continued to uh, be smooth throughout was Lindsey Graham on his second go-round of questioning. It had become very clear that Lindsey Graham was not going to vote for her and that Lindsey Graham was probably just cutting a a commercial for his next re-election bid. But he would ask her a question. He would let her say two words, and then he would cut her off and give another speech and ask Mm -hmm. another question. And she would say two words, and he would cut her off again. And I thought it was so profoundly inappropriate. And then he gets to the end, to that last question where Chairman Durbin finally just says, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to let her answer the question, and you've said enough. And she starts, and he interrupts her again after he's out of time. And, and Durbin says, we're going to just go ahead and let her answer. And Graham sort of throws his hands up in the air and says, well, she wouldn't answer any of my questions. Um, and it just was, it was really stunning because Lindsey Graham is many things. He certainly um, had a lot of changes over the last few years. But he is a former prosecutor. He is a lawyer. He understands how the courts work. And for him to behave in that way towards someone who's eminently qualified to be a Supreme Court justice, I just thought it was really disheartening. Joyce, I want your opinion as to whether that qualifies as a hissy fit. I think that that (laughs) definitely qualifies the full meaning of the word hissy fit as my mother-in-law would have used it to apply to my very theatrical daughter when she was two or three. Sorry, Ellie. (laughs) Well, I'll just uh, wrap up by saying my nominee is Senator Tom Cotton, who did something I have actually... uh, taught my law students, don't ever do this in court. You will never get away with this in court. And that is to ask a question um, for the purpose of misleading. And he went through this whole series of things and said, the average sentence in a murder case is 17 years or whatever it was. Is that too long or too short? You know, there's no right answer to that, right? It's just there to be a gotcha question. And as she said, that is not in my purview. That's a policy question. That's a question for Congress. Um, That is just not in my lane. I stay in my lane as, as a judge, which is the perfect answer. And then knowing that's going to be her, her MO, he still goes through the exercise of how about rape? The average sentence in a rape case is this. And he goes through this whole thing. It's so disingenuous. And I have to think that anybody watching that would see that all he's doing is p- trying to play word games and catch her in a gotcha moment that he can use in a political ad somewhere down the line. So, you know, in, in a court, and all of us come from this background of court, like it, it matters that you not only be literally true, but you can't even be misleading. If you mislead a, a court, that is sanctionable conduct and, and people just don't do it. It, it's, it's, it does not compute. And to see these people do it in Congress, I think is really disheartening. So I'll, uh, I'll give him my nomination. So many worthy nominees for worst moment of the hearing here. Yeah, we don't have yeah, enough we time. We can't let it go without mentioning uh, Marsha Blackburn Ugh. or yeah. Josh Hawley. Uh, those two certainly honorable mentions. are up there. Yeah, they are definitely honorable and mentions. And why are they so mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there were so many candidates for Outrageous Moment of the Hearing Award that it makes me want to go back to this notion of why we have Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees at all. Jill, you played uh, a role at the ABA, ran the ABA for a while. What's the role of the ABA? What's the role of the Federalist Society here? And, And what's the history for these Senate confirmation hearings? Great questions, and I think it is important for our listeners to know what's going on there. Let me start with the role of the ABA, which is very different, completely unrelated to the role of the Federalist Society. The ABA is an independent, nonpartisan evaluator of the qualifications of candidates for all federal courts. They spend more time on evaluating, of course, a nominee for the Supreme Court, but they go through the same process and they evaluate their professional qualifications, their writings, um, their education. They also look at their integrity and their judicial temperament. And I think we would all agree that on all three of those uh, criteria, uh, she performed admirably, beyond admirably, and she did earn their highest rating, which is highly qualified. But they do it through interviewing peers throughout the country. They interviewed, they reached out to thousands of people, but actually had long interviews with 250 people in this uh, particular case to come up with their highly qualified uh, evaluation. They only evaluate after someone has been nominated. The Federalist Society is a behind-the-scenes secret organization that makes recommendations to Republican presidents for appointing someone. So their role is evaluating for political purposes candidates who will support the Federalist Society's viewpoints. So it's very different. Now, you asked about when hearings started, and it actually the first member of the Supreme Court to be Uh, called before a hearing at the Senate was when Coolidge appointed um, Justice uh, Harlan Fisk Stone, a graduate of Columbia, and by the way, my law school, so there's some pride there, even though he was appointed by a Republican and he was a Republican. And he was controversial because he had been the Attorney General and had been pursuing indictments of a member of Congress. So that member of Congress tried to derail his appointment, and that's what led to their having a hearing. He was obviously ultimately um, confirmed. That was in 1925. It did not become standard practice until the 50s. I think it was around 1955 that it became standard practice to have the hearings, and they've pretty much gone downhill since. Uh, They used to be real inquiries about qualifications. Now they are, as I think uh, Kim said, they're basically a way for people to make talking points for future political ads. And they are not really any way an investigation into qualifications. And so it's really too bad that we've gotten to this place in our Senate that it's not a legitimate use of Senate time anymore. Jill, can I just stop you and say I had read an article that said the first Senate confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice was when Woodrow Wilson nominated Louis Brandeis and that it was animated by anti-Semitic prejudice. Is that not correct? I, You know, that's so interesting, and I think this should be part of what we're talking about because 
I had heard that. But when I did the research, what it said was 1925, Calvin Coolidge and Harlan Fistone. But I had heard that it was Brandeis, another eminent scholar who went on to be confirmed, and that it was based on his being controversial because um, probably based on religion. Um, And so I could go with either one. I have read both, but the one that seemed to be the most convincing was that it was in 1925 and then in 1955 it became so common business insider but well, maybe one of our this, listeners can tell us yeah. fascinating 1916 Woodrow it could Wilson be, both could be true yeah because of Jewish but it's background. fascinating to know whichever one of those is true right whether it was the Coolidge nomination or the Wilson nomination it's fascinating to know that it wasn't standard from the from right. the very beginning of the process right. and that it, it evolved at some point and that it evolved for political purposes, and you know, so now here we are today, yeah. probably at the at the zenith of that, unfortunately. Um, and, and it's interesting because Barb, you know, we heard a lot at the start of these hearings about how dignified and respectful they were going to be. There was sort of this effort to draw a contrast <laughs> to the hearings for Barrett and Kavanaugh, and that lasted about um, under two seconds, right? Um, it was, you know, anything but cordial. And it was absolutely stunning to me that there was this effort to pay Judge Jackson back for the fact that there had been credible allegations of sexual assault lodged against Justice, now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, uh, close in time to the date of his hearing, and that the White House refused to let those allegations be fully investigated by the FBI, which was what led to a lot of the rancor in, in those confirmation proceedings. And somehow there was this effort to, to play tit for tat in this case. What, what did you think about all of that? Were you the know, hearings productive? Do you think we should even have hearings? Well, that that's a very good question. I think the first part about just going down into the gutter, um, I just can't imagine how that appeals to voters, to any constituents. I, I suppose it does or they wouldn't do it. But um you know, they're just so mean. Uh, I think about the the tone of the questioning. You know, there's this, I mean, maybe it's the idea of I need to express my victimhood, uh, but it's it's just all so mean and sarcastic and, you know, snarky. I just don't know how that seems appealing as political candidates. Um, but, uh, you know, as soon as you hear the, uh, this is going to be a dignified and respectful hearing, you think, uh-oh, here it comes, right? It's sort of like when somebody says, with all due respect, <laughs> you know, like, oh, boy, here comes the disrespectful comment. And, and that's exactly what it was. It was like, um, this is our chance to get payback for uh, what you did to Brett Kavanaugh, which, as you said, Joyce, was not the kind of, you know, I'm just going to use you as a pinata to bash your uh, party and the president who nominated you. It was accusations about specific misconduct. Um, And whereas here, it was really, I think, you know, by focusing on child pornography cases, which is no more, uh, you know, a higher position within her, uh, her, her background of cases than any other kind of case, and no different, by the way, than any other judge makes decisions in those cases. But I think that there it was this suggestion that we're going to use her as a vehicle for portraying Joe Biden and the Democratic Party as a group of um, you know, radical, left-wing uh, liberals who want to 
release all the violent criminals and child predators from prison, and they're coming after you, and they're coming after your kids. You know, <laughs> and they're going to eat your children and your dog. Uh, you know, you could yeah, hear them saying that. Willie right. Horton, right? I mean, they were yeah, appealing to the yes, ghost yes. Of particularly one yes. um, when it, during. Uh, I believe that it was Senator Cotton, although it may have been Senator Hawley. It's all running together now. I tweeted that. I'm like, <laughs> um, something makes me think about Willie Horton. Mm-hmm. It was literally mm-hmm. uh, she was trying to be painted as somebody who would be dangerous to your your nice, safe, white suburban neighborhoods by releasing criminals uh, m- more uh, quickly than they should be when that was just factually untrue. And and the part that's, well, there's two things about this that are particularly gross. One, this whole Kavanaugh grievance hearing thing, you know, it's just really, you can tell they are so angry that Brett Kavanaugh was prevented from ascending to the Supreme Court because of these allegations. Oh, wait, he wasn't. He's on the court. They won that battle. Yet they are still mad four years later. Okay, that's point one. Point two, particularly by leaning in on this child pornography thing. Let me say it again. Judge Jackson said it herself, but I will say it again. Of the more than 100 people who she sentenced, they kept going back to the seven cases. So it's cherry picking at its best. But it's not just meant to scare voters. It's meant to appeal to a very specific type of conspiratorial um, QAnon, really heinous potential part of their electorate that they clearly need to, they know they need to keep in line in order to win elections. But that kind of stuff is what led to a restaurant here in Washington, D.C., um, someone going into it and opening fire because this person actually believed that Hillary Clinton was keeping child uh sex abuse victims in that pizzeria. I mean, the most bonkers stuff that you can actually think of, but that's who they are catering and to. And are there enough of them to, to carry their votes? Because I, I agree with you, Kim. Like, I, I'm sure they're using polling. I think polling. they need every vote. I'm sure they're doing polling. They, they know... The Republican Party knows that it's shrinking. And that tells you something if they think they need to keep every vote. It's telling you one of two things. Either these senators actually believe this conspiratorial stuff or they're just doing it for political reasons because they know that their numbers are shrinking, that uh, the the Republican Party is getting smaller every day. More of them are dying of COVID because they don't want to take Mm -hmm. vaccines or or wear masks. Well, so they have to gerrymander, right, to suppress other votes. They need to gerrymander and they need to appeal to even the worst part of their base. I mean, that's what this is showing. This This is so much more about the midterms in 2024 than it is about Judge Jackson. Well, how about it? I mean, we've talked about some of what was going on here that was bad and the political motivation. Is it unfair to say that what was happening was racist, that it was because she was a black woman that she was subjected to some of this abuse? It's all the things. It's all the things. Of course it was racist. Of course they knew that she didn't have the same privilege to clap back at them um, that Brett Kavanaugh had to to yell and scream. Of course, they knew that this um, Willie Horton approach to questioning her would land in a different way to some of their supporters than if it was done to somebody else. Um, of, of course, they're labeling, labeling her soft on crime and anti, anti-police. anti I mean, my God, she comes from a law enforcement background. But that was something that they did in terms of first responders. They did that to Sonia Sotomayor, too. Remember, they made it seem like she was against firefighters, you know, and, and this is the exact same. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
a former prosecutor was soft on fire firefighters. So, I mean, they will go for whatever it is. But yeah, it has changed a lot. Also re- recall, uh, Antonin Scalia, I believe, was confirmed unanimously. I think a handful, like maybe two or three people voted against Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is a recent, a recent development. There was a time that advising consent did not mean brutally, politically beat up the nominee. But that's where we are now. Well, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm really curious. This is something I've thought about all all week. Um, and I'm going to just hit you guys with it cold. This might be a little bit unfair. But is is this just what we're fated to have from now on in Supreme Court confirmation hearings? Is there any way to walk this back? Or is this just our forever reality? I think it's irreparably broken. Irreparably. I'm going to say the word right. I think it's irreparably broken. I think the system is irreparably broken. I don't know how we get... So should we we end them? What about that? We would have to end the hearings. We'd have to get back to bipartisanship to have any kind of hope of having decent kinds of hearings on almost any subject because we are at a point where sound bites for potential political ads are more important than the facts being elicited. And that's really too bad. Barb, you you asked the question, should we end them? I'm curious, what's your answer to the question? Uh, I don't know, because I do think, you know, watching them, I think there is a very cynical viewpoint um, at work here, which is, I know most Americans don't have time to watch these hearings in their entirety, you know, the way the way we do. We, we consume these things and we, we eat it up. Most Americans don't have time to watch that. They're at work during the day. They're not um, wa- watching the gavel-to-gavel coverage, the 13-hour hearing that was held on Tuesday. And so they are looking for those sound bites. And if they watch Fox News or they're looking on Facebook for Ted Cruz's feed to see what uh, he's putting on there or what, what, what he tweeted about or what— Marsha Blackburn tweeted about uh, the definition of a woman. Um, They know that that's all they need. They just need one little nugget, one little gotcha moment. And it doesn't matter what her answer is. What matters is what the question was. I'm wondering if there isn't a different process. I do think there is value. As Kim said earlier, there's some fair areas of questioning, asking her about her record, asking about her sentencing decisions, uh, you know, asking her about other, other kinds of things. There's value in that. But it is so devolved into something else that I wonder if we shouldn't uh, demand different rules or a different process for learning about the nominee. I think America deserves to meet the nominee and to see what they're all about because we want the, uh, them to have faith in the system and in the justices who are making these decisions. But I think the current... And it's lifetime tenure. Yeah, but I, I think the current model is broken and we need to think about ways to, to fix it. You know, it used to be that the Senate Judiciary Committee was the the crown jewel of the Senate in so many ways. This place, you know, where Hal Heflin, an Alabama senator, um, brought bipartisanship to the Senate. I think it's it's not impossible to get back to that, to be honest with you, at least for these confirmation hearings. They might be one place where the Senate could make progress, but it's going to take different senators on the committee. It would take something like a gang gang of eight that would agree to set some boundaries and do these hearings um, in a more civil format. But I'll tell you, even with the problems, I really like seeing these hearings. And I think, Barb, your point is fair that not everybody gets to watch it like we do. But for me, you guys will be shocked to know that the entire hearing was made when Maisie Hirano asked um, Judge Jackson about her creative hobbies, and she responded that she was a knitter, which listeners to our podcast already knew. 
and she acknowledged that she had a basement full of yarn. Knitters call that their stash, and we're very secretive (laughs) about the size of our stashes. We don't really like for other people to know, so it was a remarkable acknowledgement. But, you know, in, in that moment, and I heard this from a lot of people afterwards, in that moment, she was relatable. And it was a super important moment for black women and for black people in general and for little black girls who could see themselves growing up and becoming Supreme Court justices. But it was also a moment that let white suburban women say, oh, she's just like me. She's got a basement full of yarn. And I think that there are these moments of connection with the most important figures in our government. And, and when they happen, they're important. They help us stay together as a nation. They help us to be Americans. And so I, I'm going to be the Pollyanna here and say, I hope that the Senate will fix this process because it can be really important for us. Black Girls Knit. Can I just add that I remember when there was bipartisanship, when the Senate Judiciary Committee was one that had not only legitimate, honest inquiries into the background and qualifications, but when votes were bipartisan, when even rejecting a nominee. I mean, I remember uh, Carswell and Hainsworth, who didn't make it, but it was a civil rational joint agreement. And so I am, like you, Joyce, a little bit of a Pollyanna in thinking that maybe there's a way to get back. But as long as we have news silos, as long as we have propaganda and disinformation on certain media outlets, we're not going to get there because no one is listening to the facts. And you have to really care about the answers to ask ones that will elicit what you need to know. And so that's where my problem is, is that we're not in a place where there is uh, honesty and truth and fact in all the media outlets. There was a great moment where Senator Ossoff, you know, as all this bickering was going on early, he said, you guys, you know, the American people have tuned into this hearing. They're here to listen to us question the nominee. Let's table all of this conversation and controversy about procedure until the end. And I thought, Senator Ossoff, that guy, he could restore normalcy to these proceedings. He was the adult in the room. So let's hope, and we, I think, all believe that um, Justice Brown Jackson will be Justice Brown Jackson. She'll move from judge. And let's look at what kind of court she's going to be facing. What cases is she going to be able to hear? What cases will she have to recuse on? And what do we think the big issues that she faces are going to be? Uh, Joyce, you want to start? Well, one thing that we all know she'll face in this court will be continued questions about voting, the Voting Rights Act, as the court continues to restrict it. We saw just this week there was another shadow docket ruling from the court in the area of voting rights. This time it dealt with redistricting in Wisconsin. We got at least a per curiam opinion this time with a vehement dissent um, from the uh, liberal wing of the court talking about the fact that Section 2 is being eroded. So, so this is the environment she finds herself in on a 6-3 uh, conservative majority 
with a trajectory where the court continues to erode voting rights. And I'll tell you, I'm not hopeful at all about what's going to happen with the law in this area. But something that I I did learn from listening to this hearing that I didn't know beforehand about Judge Jackson is that she can explain complicated legal concepts in ways that non-lawyers can understand them. And so as the court continues to make what I think will be a a string of bad rulings in voting rights, at least having this powerful voice that can help the average American out there understand what's going on, I think that will be helpful. Barb likes to say that dissents are written for the future. Mm -hmm. I think she will write some powerful dissents. Yeah. And Barb, do you agree? Yeah, and also, you know, I think we tend to forget that she's on the court now and she'll be in the minority. But, you know, she might be on the court for 30 or 40 years. Um, She's 51 years old. People live a long time now. And we've seen so many of these justices stay on the court well into their 80s. And so she's going to be there for a long time. And you never know how things can change on a dime. I mean, remember when Justice Scalia died? That was so out of the blue. And so at some point, we may even see her be in the majority. And so, um, yes, I think her dissents are important. And today's dissent might be tomorrow's majority opinion. It gets people thinking about new ideas and outside the box. So uh, I think, you know, her her job is very important, even though she will still be, uh, for now, likely voting in the minority in some of those cases. And don't forget, there's so many cases that are decided 9-0. You know, it's these big cases that get a lot of uh, news attention that are the 5-4 decisions or the 6-3 decisions these days. Um, But um, I, I think in the long run, she will absolutely make her mark. And, you know, remember that when the justices make their rulings, they get together in a a room. It's just the nine of them. There's not even a clerk in there. And they go through and they discuss and they take that vote. And she will be at that table and she will bring to bear her professional and lived experiences um, on all these issues, including I'm thinking about uh, on the voting rights cases that we're talking about, you know, famously in the Shelby County case, you had Chief Justice John Roberts essentially say, well, you know, we, we don't need this stuff anymore. It's not the, the country's not racist like it used to be. I think she will have something. I think she would like a word on that topic and be able to talk to them about it in a way that will make them listen to bring her uh, experiences as somebody who grew up in a different part of the country. She's from Florida. She will bring her experience as a defense attorney. So there's so much more about this job than simply um, the, the, the opinions and dissents, probably more dissents than opinions, than she'll be writing. Just on the substance of what's coming up next um, term that we know about, we know that there is an affirmative action case and that this Supreme Court has chipped away Uh, at the ability of colleges and universities to continue to consider race as one of many factors in admissions um, down to its bare bones. And that was done by uh, Justice, uh, now retired Justice Kennedy, who kept the little bit of the legality of it, uh, constitutionality, uh, constitutional protection of it that exists in place. And that is likely going to fall by the wayside she was asked if she would recuse from that. I'm assuming because she went to Harvard. <laughs> and I think that's an odd... Uh, she's on the board of overseers. She's on the board of overseers. Okay, that's a better reason. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. 
Um, she said she will recuse from that. So she won't have a voice in saying that. We'll have to rely again on Sonia Sotomayor, who has issued blistering and moving dissents in the affirmative action cases where, uh, in cases like in Michigan, where it was rolled back. But we do know that she will not play a role in that. But she will play a role in a lot of important issues, whether it's voting rights or whether it's things like gerrymandering, whether it's things about the administrative state and the ability of the executive branch to make regulations that regarding things from healthcare to uh, the EPA, she's going to be on there considering the most important issues that face us. So even though she will sit out that one, um, she will be at least a voice in all the others. It'll be very interesting because she really doesn't change the makeup of the court. She replaces a member of the 6-3 minority. And so it will stay a 6-3 majority conservative court. Um, But one thing she will bring is she's well known as someone who is a consensus builder. And so maybe there's a way to make some of the decisions at least 5-4 by attracting one of the six to the minority position. And maybe she can be even more persuasive and flip it so that it's 5-4 on the minority side. Um, which, of course, wouldn't then be the minority, but on the more liberal side. So it'll be interesting to watch how, you know, she impacts, even though she doesn't change the makeup of the court. Um, And maybe she'll have an impact on talking about the shadow docket. We've talked Mm. about that a lot. Does anybody think there's any way that she can influence how many cases get decided on the shadow docket? That's a good question. You know, I think the shadow docket in some ways is a necessary evil, right? Because, Kim, doesn't it deal with preliminary or procedural matters that have to be dispensed with one way or the other? Yeah, so there's always been a shadow docket. It often happens in capital cases where they have to make a determination um, based on a petition that a death row inmate makes before that execution. So that has always happened. What is different lately is that they are using this... um, fast track way that avoids full briefing and full oral arguments to decide issues in a way that it's really a final ruling um, that really is for all intents and purposes on the merits in a way that sort of skirts around the accountability that a full hearing and a full opinion will bring. I mean, I think the Texas abortion law is the best example of this. That went into effect before there was any full briefing or argument on that. And that affects a fundamental constitutional right. That's where the shadow docket goes left. Um, And so maybe she will be a voice to help prevent that from happening. I think you meant goes off kilter, not goes left. It definitely didn't go left, (laughs) it went right. I meant when I said going left is is vernacular. It doesn't mean politically left. It means when, thi- when things go left, that means that things go wrong, right? That means that things go off, th- off the track, but it, it is the correct. It's a very GOP-centric view of the world you have, Kim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that, that phrase came out of the black community, so I assure you, it is not GOP-centric. So 
So now we've come to the favorite part of our show, which is answering questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we answer as many of your questions as we can. I want to start out with a question from Kelly uh, from Newport News. She asks... Will the news about Ginny Thomas mean that Justice Clarence Thomas uh, will have to recuse from future cases involving the January 6th committee? Who wants to who wants to answer Kelly's question? I'll answer it. I think that it should mean that if there were any rules of ethics that apply to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, as of this moment, uh, the court that uh, Justice Jackson will join, does not have any ethics rules, so there's no way to force him to recuse himself. But yes, I think the tweets make a very clear and compelling case that her role in January 6th will at least create the appearance of impropriety if he sits in on any decisions involving subpoenas and uh, criminality from that event. And I just want to say, like, this is the latest example of this, and it's bonkers, right? I mean, these texts that she was texting to um, Mark Meadows, and now as we're taping, we see new news that she was emailing uh, members of Congress and such— I mean, talking about releasing the Kraken and how, you know, invoking Jesus. and so, I mean, they're so off the rails, but they're so, um, it makes it so clear that she is so deeply involved in the events leading up to January 6th that I think that Justice Thomas should, it shouldn't even be, it should be a no-brainer that he should have recused in the first case that they decided about January 6th document production, but certainly any future one. But it's important to remember, Ginny Thomas has been a part of the uh, GOP advocacy apparatus for decades and deeply involved either in organizations or in funding or in parties or people who show up as amici in cases that go before the Supreme Court for decades, right? So I, it's my opinion, this is just my opinion, that Justice Thomas should have recused himself from a number of cases, including and not limited to Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, the, uh, the um, travel ban case, the Obamacare cases. Jenny Thomas was deeply involved in the organization challenging the constitutionality of Obamacare. This has been going on for so long, and we should, Jill is exactly right, that we don't have a rule that requires Supreme Court justices to recuse in those cases. There should have been those rules in place back then, and we may not be where we are right now. So let me push back a little bit and just play the nerdy constitutional lawyer here and say that the issue is a little bit complicated because of the balance of powers among the three branches of government. And one of the reasons historically that while we have ethics rules for the lower federal courts is that it's a more complicated issue when you get to the Supreme Court itself. And that's why Justice Roberts, I think, has advocated for this position of letting the court, in essence, police itself. But Kim, I agree with you very strongly that we are long past the point in time where that makes any sense. The court has proved that it cannot police itself. And so I don't know whether Justice Roberts is going to have to craft some internal mechanism to the courts where maybe you even get 
you know, give circuit judges or uh, district judges a pop at Supreme Court judges on ethics issues. But something here is going to have to change. The real problem is going to be crafting something that's enforceable, because right now, John Roberts can go to Clarence Thomas and and beg him to recuse himself. And look, we know that happens at courts across the country, right, where you've got a, a judge who's maybe not hitting it on the straight and narrow, and the chief judge in that district court or that court of appeals goes to one of their brethren or sistren and says, listen, we really need to be concerned about how the community views us, and there's an appearance of impropriety if you sit on this case, and I wish you'd reconsider. And chief judges can make that ask, but they can't enforce it. So that's the challenge here for Chief Justice Roberts. I I think one solution, if you want to police themselves, is to adopt the same rule that is used in the lower courts, which is, you know, right now, as Jill said, the only Mm -hmm. prohibition is if your spouse is an actual party in a lawsuit— or is an officer a director of a company, or you have a direct financial tie. And I do think it's important to recognize we are not our spouses. We live you know, separate and independent lives. But there are some times when there is it, it, the standard that would apply at the lower courts is either an actual conflict of interest or an apparent conflict of interest. And that is one mm-hmm. where a reasonable member of the public would, could fairly question the justice's impartiality. And the reason that's a problem is it undermines the legitimacy of the court when a justice makes a decision that could tend to favor their spouse. And it, in particular, there you know it may not be every case, but the case that was already decided in which um, Justice Thomas was the only dissenter, the case where uh, Donald Trump was ty- trying to prevent the National Archives from turning over White House documents to uh, the January 6th committee. It could very well be that the reason that he rejected or that he was the dissenter in that case is he wanted to protect his wife and himself from having those messages disclosed to the January 6th committee. So I think in, in that kind of case, there is a real conflict there is one that could fairly cause people to question his impartiality, and he is harming the court. I think Justice Roberts should push to have that broader standard for recusal. It's really important right now where the opinion of the American public of the court has really sunk, and it's at one of the lowest points ever. A friend of mine who's a lawyer in private practice said, why can't Justice Roberts just go to him and say, if you don't recuse, I'm going to vote against however you vote, and I'm going to say that the reason I'm doing that is because you are not recusing, as a means of trying to embarrass him into recusing. I'm, I said to her, that will never happen. It's not going to be. But it's a nice dream, because it would certainly help the appearance, if it forced the recusal, it would certainly help the reputation of the court. And I, for one, would like to see the court be the respected institution that it needs to be as the final word on whether our laws meet constitutional standards. It's important. So Bill from Albuquerque asks, what is the significance of the new RICO lawsuit that Donald Trump filed against Hillary Clinton and others? Barb, you want to take that on? Oh, man, if I'm Hillary Clinton or Jim Comey or any of the other defendants in this case, I say bring it. You know, I think this is um, trying to do what John Durham's investigation has failed to do, which is to uh, turn the tables and create a false narrative that it wasn't Donald Trump who was working with Russians in the 2016 election. It was actually 
after Hillary Clinton. Um, I mean, really, Hillary Clinton? Are we still going after Hillary Clinton? Um, but if, if I'm Hillary Clinton or Jim Comey, I'm saying, you know what the first thing I'm going to do in this case is? I am going to uh, notice up a, a deposition for Donald Trump. And I'm going to put yes. him under oath and I'm going to ask him all these yes, questions. Yes, yes, And you watch, this case is going to fizzle. It is not going to prevail. This is all about, I need, you know, asking Vladimir Zelensky, I just need you to announce an investigation. Leave the rest to me. That's what this is about. It's a, it's a, it's a press release masquerading as a lawsuit. That is really great. I mean, we have already talked about Rule 11 here, and I can talk about that all day because I'm a nerdy uh, Civ Pro person. But whoever, I I didn't make it through deep enough into this complaint to see the attorneys who actually signed this uh, complaint that was filed in a federal court in Florida. But all of them should be brought up uh, for Rule 11 sanctions. Basically, in layman's terms, what it means is you cannot file a lawsuit in federal court that you know is absolute BS or you can be faced with serious <laughs> sanctions. And so I think that the sanctions need to fly. And the other thing I do is I'd hire the most expensive attorneys I could because I know that he would end up having to pay them <laughs> under the sanctions. Legal fees. So let's get a, right up there. All right, our final question is from Jeffrey in Chatsworth, California, who asks... Uh, have you read Garrett Graff's new book on Watergate called Watergate, A New History? If so, I was wondering what your thought about its accuracy. Jill, have you read it? <laughs> I think he must have meant that one for me. And yes, I have read parts of it. I wasn't going to read it because I thought, well, what is there about Watergate that I don't already know? <laughs> so I wasn't going to get it. And it's a very voluminous, heavy, big book. But um, a friend texted me that I was named a lot in the book and so that I might want to read it. So I did order the book. It arrived. And, of course, the first thing I did, I don't think you'll be surprised, was I looked at the index, looked up my name, (laughs) and was immediately humiliated because one of the first topics under my name was the appearance of. And while I hoped it meant my appearance on the scene, it didn't. It meant my... Appearance, wow. as in, oh. it refers to my peaches and uh, cream complexion, my mini skirts. It called me the blonde bombshell. So oh. I'm now in a history book for my appearance. Now, if anyone thinks this is not sexism writ large, I don't know what else it is. It is extremely well written, I will say, from my skimming it. It's quite a readable book. It's not like a history book. It's written like a story, a a, a novel almost. And I am actually looking forward to delving into it. And after I have finished the 500 plus pages, I will tell Jeffrey whether I think it was completely accurate. The parts that I read are true, unflattering though they may be, that it's true that was the first thing I looked up, and um, every other reference to me was actually was accurate he, and true. Was he so. characterizing you in those ways himself, or was he merely reflecting the way it was reported at the time in the 1970s? Re- reflecting okay. the 70s. So it that wasn't is part of the historical context. Me that. Okay. Yeah. Yes, it, it is. It is. But it's just a shame right. that that's how yeah. I'm remembered. But And he does quote from my memoir. So, um, y- you know, listen, if anybody picks up my memoir, The Watergate Girl, because I'm quoted in uh, Graf's book, that's good. I have no You're complaints about that. You're memorable for many reasons, Jill. Thank you. You really <laughs> are. You really are. 
Thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkinstore. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's episode using the hashtag Sisters in Law. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our new women's tea. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Magic Spoon, Honey, Policy Genius, and Function of Beauty. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. So I did not want to say that in that segment, but I have to say just, and this is not, I mean, I knew and respected Jill Weinbanks before I ever saw you with my own eyeballs, right? But just seeing you on TV and certainly seeing you in person, I don't think I've ever seen a more stylish person. Like, so it's even more disingenuous (laughs) that they were, people were hitting you about your appearance because my goodness, like a hair is never out of place. Even when you're in a t-shirt and (laughs) jeans, you are stylish. When we had lunch, holy moly, you looked fantastic. (laughs) I mean, you're, you're probably one of the most stylish humans on the planet. So that they're trying to hit you on that. It's like, please, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? Some, some, polyester suit like d- don't do it <laughs> yeah right don't do it i do not come for joe no, Banks. no it's just it's just so embarrassing to have that be i get it part of my legacy i mean it's like uh, news reports i mean it is accurate reporting i'm not saying it's not accurate it's but it's also a hit that news reporting from, included that yeah, but it's also I mean, like it's it's how ted cruz is in part i believe going after katanji that way because he's bitter because he was on that same law review and he is not being nominated <laughs> yeah, right. to this i believe yeah, that his statements no they could never look that good and all they could do is hit you on it right it just it yeah yeah <laughs> it's true it's true it's just it's just Something that I would like to put behind me. Jill, as Cory Booker said, do not let them steal your joy. (laughs) We we feel your joy. Don't give them the oxygen. They don't get any oxygen. We feel your joy. I know. You know, and my father always felt that it was very important for him as a professional, he was a CPA, to dress really well Mm -hmm. and to have really clean hands and nails because how would a client trust him to do their tax work if he? Wasn't dressed that way. Show respect for yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think that's an important thing, and um, and I like being a girl. I like you know fashion and lipsticks and colors and all that. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's not inconsistent with a professional role. So hate me because I'm stylish. Come on, right, right. Don't hate Joe Weinbanks because she's stylish.